this is on point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. There's a company called Scientific Games Incorporated. It's a soothingly benign corporate moniker that invokes, I don't know, maybe a modern day app maker? But Scientific Games Inc. is so much more than that, so very much more. Scientific Games, in fact, is one of the reasons why Americans spend almost $100 billion on state lotteries every single year. That's more than we spend on coffee, cigarettes, or smartphones. It's also more than we spend on books, video games, sports, and movie tickets combined. Well, how? And why did that happen? And with such spectacular rapidity that when the first Scratch game was introduced in 1974 in Massachusetts, a mere two years later, every state lottery that existed in 1976 had adopted Scratch tickets, and soon many more states jumped on the lotto bandwagon. So where is all that money going? Well, Jonathan Cohen answers those questions in his new book. It's called For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. And he joins us today from Fairfield, Connecticut. Jonathan Cohen, welcome to On Point. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, first of all, just out of for the spirit of total transparency, do you play the lottery? Uh, it depends who you ask. Uh, I would say very, very rarely. My wife would say more often than I ought to. Uh, but she hasn't met uh, all the, as many lottery players as I have in the course of my research for, to whom I, I have a comparison point of. These are people who play every week, every day. In states like Massachusetts, you can play every hour uh, on, a, on a Kino game. So no, I very, very infrequently play the lottery. Uh, but even that is too much for some people, apparently. Yeah, I... Um... Uh, will subject myself to the same scrutiny and say that I almost never play, but I will admit that I have fantasies about winning the lottery, and when Powerball gets in that, you know, billion-dollar range, I might buy a ticket or two, but that's about it. Uh, so the your book, I just think that it's utterly fascinating because it really goes into how um, in this narrow window of American history, even though lotteries had been played for quite a long time, centuries even, um, there's this rapid expansion of state-based lotteries. So take us back to, I guess, the the precipitating events here, which don't have anything to do with lotteries, but have more to do with taxes in the 1960s. What's important about that period of time? That's right. So in the immediate post-World War II period, the United States is in this in this sort of perfect storm economically, uh, where because of its, its post-war dominance, the nation can, and the states in particular, can offer increased array of state services uh, without raising taxes. Um, and and this, this arrangement is possible, um, again, through this sort of unique confluence of, of international and internal factors. Um, and it really starts grinding to a halt in the 1960s with inflation, with increased spending on the Vietnam War. Uh, and, and that is what, for, for states, is sort of creating this shortfall budgetarily and also creating these problems of these voters who want all the services they've gotten used to, but also don't want higher taxes and have gotten used to this low tax environment and don't know what else to, and the states don't know what else to do. And there are very few ways for states to raise money without uh, raising taxes other than through these sort of creative means of a lottery. But, but why the lottery, though? Yeah, it, it's a fair question. So I think 
as you alluded to, lotteries have been used uh, for raising money for civic purposes, as far as I can tell, back to the 15th century uh, in Genoa. Uh, some some scholars say as early as the the construction of the Great Wall of China was funded in part through monies raised for lotteries. Uh, I haven't seen the evidence on that. Um, but but as a result, the lottery is not like uh, you know legalizing marijuana, which actually does happen very briefly in a couple of states in the 70s. But it is not sort of this out of out of out of left field idea. It's sort of known as a practice, as a way of raising money for government. And, and we can get into this in more detail. They're also in these states that have the first uh, the first lotteries in the Northeast and the Rust Belt. There is this huge uh, uh, operation of illegal numbers games, of illegal lotteries that show voters and legislators how profitable these games are and lead folks to reason that if people are already going to gamble, they might as well legalize and make money for the state rather than through racketeers or organized crime. Yeah, so we we will get into that a little bit later. But let's now get into some, some specifics here. You write that the modern state lottery system began in New Hampshire. Uh, so do, is Live there, free or die. <laughs> Live free or die, or, or you know, bet ten, twenty, thirty, forty dollars. Who knows? Um, but 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 tell us the story about how New Hampshire got started. Yes, yeah, so New Hampshire, you know, famously tax reverse, uh, one of the only one of only three states uh, in the nineteen sixties without a sales or an income tax. So really, sort of heavily reliant on property taxes um, and, and willing to take a chance. And the New Hampshire lottery, I can't even describe how insane it is compared to what we have today. But they sort of really try to create this legitimacy for the games, or all these fears uh, in the nineteen sixties that the games are going to be corrupt and infiltrated by organized crime. So the first head of the New Hampshire lottery direct, uh, the first head of the New Hampshire lottery. It's called the New Hampshire Lottery Sweepstakes. is an F is a former FBI agent uh, because that's sort of the only way that they could garner the sufficient trust that the games were going to be on the level. And the games themselves are insane. You like it's basically a raffle, but you're not really buying a ticket for a numbers drawing. You're buying it for a horse race, and there's going to be a separate drawing to see which horse race ties to which prize, and then a third drawing. It's re- it's really complicated and not worth getting into. But again, it's just sort of emblematic of the fears at the time of of corruption. How sort of what a sort of small enterprise this was compared to the you know multi billion dollar industry we have today, um, and also the the need for legitimacy that was so important culturally in order to enable the legalization of gambling at a really sort of really tenuous point in American history. Okay. So this is a uh, an important sort of uh, prelude to what I really want to spend some time with you uh, discussing, and, and that is the the companies that are behind then the very rapid spread of state lottery systems across the country, which check me on something, Jonathan, right now. I think it's every state but five That's have right. a state lottery. Okay, so so what happens um, in Massachusetts in 1974 with those scratch tickets? Right. So so Scientific Games, who who you alluded to at the top, uh, is a creator of of scratch tickets, instant tickets as we know them today, which are introduced at a one dollar price point in Massachusetts uh, in 1974. And the premise here is that the games that existed at the time they would take like weeks or months to have a drawing. It wasn't like we didn't have Lotto, you know, Powerball, Mega Millions, where you have a couple drawings a week. You have to wait a while uh, for the for the drawings. And the creators of Scientific Games had worked on. Uh, I guess what, whatever the 1960s equivalent of like the the Shaw's and Star Market uh, Albertsons Monopoly game, like when you go when you go to the, the grocery store and they have those promotions, they had developed those first and they adapted them into lotteries uh, and into again what we know as as scratch tickets. 
And as you alluded to at the top, they sell like wildfire, uh, in, starting in Massachusetts and then spreading to every other state. Uh, the problem for scientific games is that uh, there are only 14 state lotteries uh, by the end of 1977, and they want to keep selling tickets and they want to keep adding markets for their tickets. Uh, but to their mind, there's, there's no place else to go. And so what do they – by the way, first, before I was going to ask you what do they do, I just want to say the, the, the first uh, uh, scratch ticket you said in Massachusetts sold cost a dollar, right? That's right. Okay. Well, the, the Massachusetts State Lottery Commission, but at the very end of last year, so just a week or two ago, announced that uh, the state will be introducing a $50 scratch ticket uh, soon. So, And Texas is already has a $100. So a $100 scratch? And, 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 and as folks may know, from if anyone has ever been to a convenience store, there are... The, the variety and the colors and the types of games and the crossword games and the, the mix and match, the, the variety has just completely exploded, as has, even in 1974, the states would have like one type of scratch ticket at a time. So you wouldn't even have multiple scratch tickets on sale. You'd have to wait for the first run of scratch tickets to go out. Then there might be like a week or two break where there's just no lottery tickets available. And then the new type of scratch tickets would, would come in. It would be like, like a new album dropping. Like, oh, the new scratch tickets are in. Everybody rush to the 7-Eleven and pick one up. Okay. Oh, my God. A $100 scratch. That just, it boggles the mind. Okay. So what does scientific games do? Because in what, I mean, how many uh, state lottery systems were in existence by 1976 and that first sort of flush of of states picking up uh, scratch tickets? Right. So there's 14 uh, by the end of 1977. And again, so scientific games sort of wants to expand the market for its tickets. Um, So it starts uh, by supporting initiatives in, in the District of Columbia, and then it does sort of this engage in this uh, hyper, hyper-intensive astroturfing campaign uh, in Arizona, in, Cal- in California, in Oregon, Missouri, uh, Colorado, uh, and Iowa. Uh, and by astroturfing, I mean what they are doing is creating the illusion of grassroots support for a corporate-funded campaign where they are uh, paying signature collectors to put bills on the ballot. They are drafting the legislation that is going to enact a lottery. They are paying for advertising to convince voters to enact a lottery. Uh, and then, and again, all this done under the guise of citizens groups that are meant to create the illusion that these are popular programs, but really it's just a one self-interested company trying to expand the market for its lottery tickets. And, I mean, you write that they were remarkably successful in that. You, you write in the book that between 1980 to 1984, scientific games facilitated the passage of lotteries in California, huge state, Arizona, Oregon, Colorado, Missouri, Iowa, and Washington, D.C., just in a period of four years. That's right. And just for reference, you know, as you alluded to, we now, we now have 45 lottery uh, states. All, only five have passed lotteries through initiatives, and all five were passed in that particular period between 1980 and 1984. So really, uh, uh, the only way a lottery is going to pass through an initiative process was when it had a giant corporate backer, uh, in this case, Scientific Games. Okay. And then the others were passed because the a legislator just dis- legislat- legislatures just decided to adopt state lotteries. So this is, this is a really important point, I think. Um, there's this longstanding argument both on the state side and for, for players that gambling is this inevitable pastime that people just gamble and and it's fine. And what that does is sort of resigns folks, I I think, to this inevitability that that's not really true. So what what in this case, what I mean is that scientific games creates this illusion through the passage of lotteries in all these states that a lottery is going to come for you anyway, so you might as well get on board early. 
And that's not necessarily true. It takes a lot of money to, you know, lobby for lotteries and draft a bill and such and such. But Nebraska, you know, may well have waited years and years or decades. Uh, but scientific games through the through this blitzkrieg in from 1980 to 1984 creates this illusion that a lottery is inevitable and that it's going to spread across the American commercial landscape very, very quickly. Uh, well, when we come back, we're going to talk about sort of uh, what that dream is in your title of a for a dollar and a dream state lotteries in modern America. It's a new book by Jonathan Cohen. And we'll have more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Jonathan Cohen is with us today. He's a historian and author of the new book, For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. And Jonathan, we were talking about the company Scientific Games uh, before the break here. There are a couple more uh, uh, companies in the in the lottery business or that help uh, run state lotteries now, but Scientific Games remains a really, really big player here. I'm looking uh, in your book, and in the 1980s, you say that uh, the company produced 85% of all instant tickets sold in the United States um, and had, what, 96% of the early private market for lotto and and numbers games. And someone had called them the, the McDonald's of lottery companies. Are they still that much of a giant in the field? So there's a little bit more competition in, in the 80s is when you get a company called uh, G-Tech, or now known as IGT, based in Providence, that sort of really competes for the for the lotto, uh, for you know Powerball, Mega Millions, those types of games. Um, but as, as of my last calculation, Scientific Games to this day has 70% of the global, so not just the U.S., but the global market share uh, for instant tickets and is the instant ticket provider for at least 30 uh, of the U.S. state lotteries. So yeah, they're, they're doing just fine. Okay. Well, we actually reached out to Scientific games to see if someone from the company would want to join us today. They declined, but they did send us a statement here. Okay. And the state, I'm going to read it in full because it's quite interesting. So the statement from Scientific Games is, quote, since the mid-1960s, U.S. lotteries have provided entertainment for millions of players while returning billions of dollars in funding for vital public programs and services such as education, health and welfare, transportation, and the environment to benefit the quality of life for residents in their states. As a trusted partner of lotteries around the world, Scientific Games proudly supports their missions to maximize revenues returned to good causes through the sale of lottery games. And we do so 
with the utmost level of transparency, integrity, and government compliance. We are committed to our lottery partners in helping responsibly grow proceeds for their important beneficiary programs and propelling the industry ever forward, end quote. So it's that first paragraph about the billions of dollars in funding for vital public programs. How does that land with you? So, so of course, on paper, they're right. You know, I, I believe the number um, since 1964 uh, is that lotteries have raised roughly $252 billion uh, for states, which, which is a lot. Uh, but the question that, that stands out to me at the heart of Scientific Games' statement is, I have no doubt, and for the most part, Scientific Games has been above board, and lots of states use lots of contractors for lots of different things, and and I think that's okay. But the real the, the real heart of this question is, you know, are lotteries actually a good thing that should exist? And you know, how how socially conscious can the most socially conscious lottery provider actually be? Uh, that that to me is sort of the un, the elephant in the room, so to speak. Of yes, they are helping states make this money, but is this money that states should be making, and are they making it in the way that they should be? Okay. So, you know, we are, uh, this program is heard uh, across the country, but I'd actually like to use my home state of Massachusetts as an interesting case study here, Jonathan, because we, my uh, home state as well, because we have this, um, you know, the Bay State has this kind of dubious distinction of being a state that really loves the lottery. (laughs) Um, we have the highest per capita spend rate, um, on state lotteries of any state in the whole Country. So the rest of America look to Massachusetts to see both the good and the bad of state lotteries here. Um, so l- let's dig into some numbers, Jonathan. I was looking up um, uh, contracts that were handed out by the State Lottery Commission in Massachusetts. And the last public one that I could dig up in short notice was given out in 2012. Uh, and it had those names that you mentioned in it GTEC, Printing Corporation, Scientific Games, and Pollard Banknote Limited. Um, And that is for the running of the instant uh, ticket game design and marketing services in Massachusetts. uh, The contract was fifty one million dollars. Okay, so they're still they're still doing quite well in terms of um, how much the companies earn from the states. But again, every time we speak to state uh, representatives, lawmakers, uh, cabinet members, there's always this sense that it's a net positive for the people of Massachusetts. I mean, back in 2013, I spoke with the state treasurer then, uh, Massachusetts treasurer Steve Grossman, and here's what he like how he described the importance of the state lottery. Remember, this is a four and three quarter billion dollar business that, as you said, generated almost a billion dollars in profits last year. It is the single most important source of unrestricted local aid mm-hmm. for every city and town in Massachusetts. Okay, so that was in 2013, and he said it was a four and three quarter billion dollar uh, revenue generator for the state. We looked up the numbers in 2022, and revenues for this Massachusetts state lottery topped five point eight billion dollars. That sounds pretty good, Jonathan. It sounds really good, and as does uh, just to update the number on the on the unrestricted transfers to local cities and towns uh, is over one point one billion by my by my estimate. Sounds sounds really good on paper. Well, but I. The, that $1.1 billion, at least I can say that uh, the state lottery does say where that money goes. Okay, so, for example, we looked at um, the city of Boston, obviously the biggest, biggest city here. And in fiscal year 22, 
Boston received $208 million in lottery revenue. The city's operating budget uh, for the same fiscal year was $3.76 billion. So the lottery provided, what, 5.5% of the state's, uh, excuse me, of the city of Boston's revenue. Again, doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, it's not nothing. Um, again, and I think just to, to Steve Grossman's comment, it's a little bit of a, a sort of a sleight of hand uh, because there aren't many other sources of unrestricted local aid. So it's, that doesn't take much for the lottery to be the largest. Um, but yes, as, as we said at the top, there are so few ways to, for governments to raise money without taxes uh, that it's easy for the lottery to stand out. But Again, 5% is not nothing, but it's still just 5%. And I would love to put that in perspective. And I don't see why <laughs> you, don't see, you don't see state treasurers out there promoting people to pay property taxes. But that's really where the bread and butter money for government is going to come from. Um, but they sort of seem to be stuck on promoting this, this, the lottery, uh, which is never, ever going to get to more than 5 to 6%. And if we did ever get more than that, then we'd have a real hard problem. Uh, uh, ethical, moral, political, economic, you name it, with all these people who are not spending money on other goods and are buying lottery tickets instead. Yeah, so we're going to talk about who's buying tickets in just a second here. But, but you know, I think something that perhaps is even more relevant to listeners outside of Massachusetts, but again, we'll use the, the Massachusetts example, is um, overall, in terms of a state budget, because, you know, the, again, the promise is that there's all this money going to schools and transportation and uh, and parks and what what have you. Um, <clears throat> but the, the state budget in Massachusetts last year was forty seven billion dollars. Uh, and as we heard, it was a billion dollars that came from lottery revenues. That's just two percent. Now, how how common is that percentage uh, when compared to other state lotteries across the country. Yeah, that that's more in line. The 5% to local cities and towns is high. 2 to 3%, maybe even I've seen 1% uh, is, is more in line with what I've seen. And just for reference, uh, you know, most states, there's this association. Massachusetts is actually unique uh, for, for giving its, its lottery money to local cities and towns. Uh, most states, there's this association that it supports education, but there's this bizarre scheme where for every lottery dollar that goes into the education budget, $1 from the education budget comes back out into the general fund. So you sort of end up just robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of thing. It doesn't actually add uh, additional money to these causes that lotteries market themselves as helping. Okay, so say say that again and and then explain it more in a way that uh, the people who aren't familiar with how state budgets work would understand, because you're essentially saying that the promise is there's going to be surplus money for important things uh, in a state, but that in truth, it's a wash? Right. So so I guess the simple simplest way is, let's say there's $100 all, ad, allocated uh, for the education budget. We hope, and it, it's marketed as, oh, we're going to get make $10 from the lottery, and now that will be $110 for education. But in fact, you put those $10 into the education budget, and you take $10 back out. So the education still only has a net of $100, and now there's just an extra $10 floating in the general fund for legislators to play with. So it, it, it supplants uh, rather than supplements lottery uh, money that's already allocated for education. And yet people are told constantly, though, that the state lottery uh, is basically a, a, a way to help uh, increase funding for important state services. That's right. And because lottery commissions, right, who are not beholden to, to these budgetary problems, lottery commissions have every incentive to market and advertise themselves as agents for the public good. 
And it doesn't matter, you know, they don't need to say, oh, by the way, we're only providing 2% of state revenue. They say, no, we're doing so much good for Massachusetts, for Iowa, for California, wherever. Uh, You should buy more tickets and you should feel good about doing so because of all the good you're doing for your community uh, every time you gamble. But you're saying that's just not true. It's 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 either not true or it's a very, they're really stretching the bounds of truth. Okay, so um, let's talk about who's playing, right? Because we're talking right now. We're just talking about money, but it's coming from somewhere and, and someone in particular. And unlike taxes, which have a pretty straightforward um, way of figuring out like who pays what. The picture is more interesting when it comes to this magic money that's coming uh, from lottery revenues. So, again, I'm going to return to the Massachusetts example here because I would say we have the the dubious distinction of being the state that has the highest per capita spending on state lotteries. In Massachusetts, uh, according to an analysis using 2020 census data, um, uh, individual Massachusetts residents on a per capita basis spent $805 uh, annually on on the lottery. Now, the per capita figure, I think, is a little bit misleading because um, the state itself says only about 70% of people in the state play and 30% of people in Massachusetts don't play play at all. So it's actually probably higher than $800 per person for those people who are playing. Now, who... Are the bulk of the people, whether it's Massachusetts or anywhere else, who plays the lottery? Yeah. So, so for reference, fifty uh, percent of Americans buy the lottery ticket at least once a year. Uh, one in eight do so at least once a week. Um, and that group, that one in eight, and and maybe the you know the folks who are at the eight hundred number or above in Massachusetts, that is a group that is uh, disproportionately less educated, lower income, and non-white. Uh, studies indicate that as, med- as much as 50% of total national lottery sales come from the top 10% of players, and the top 20 to 30% of players uh, might account for as much as 70 or 80% uh, of sales. And again, those are those are the groups that I, that I mentioned earlier. Okay, well, the, and that no, those numbers hold true in, again, our case study of Massachusetts, because uh, according to a state analysis from back in 2016, the top 10% of players accounted for 40% of sales in uh, just this state. And we, again, back in 2016, I actually spoke to the person who did this study. She's a professor at the University of Massachusetts. Her name is Rachel Volberg. Uh, and here's what she told us about who those top 10% of players are. We found in Massachusetts that men are three times more likely to have a gambling problem than women. In terms of race and ethnicity, blacks or African-Americans are four times more likely to have a gambling problem than someone who has a Caucasian ethnicity. And then we found that people who had low education, that is, who only had a high school diploma or less, were quite a few times more likely to have a gambling problem than people with a college degree. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Jonathan Cohen, this question of state lotteries and race actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the state lottery system in this country, does it not? You tell that story in the book. It, it does. And, and the, one of the reasons that Massachusetts and other states in the Northeast were the pioneers 
the lottery pioneers, uh, was because in many of these states, there were ubiquitous, and I really mean ubiquitous, and I can't, more so than, than lotteries are today, uh, illegal numbers games, illegal daily lotteries, particularly in urban, black, and Latino communities, and, and to a somewhat lesser extent in white working class communities. Um, and these are people, uh, these games you could play for as little as a few cents, um, but basically everyone was either invo- was involved in this underground gambling economy in some way, and, and the ubiquity of these games in these in these non-white communities really shaped public perception um, about lotteries as a way of raising money for government services and how profitable they could be, um, and really helped set the stage uh, for the rise of state-run games in the '60s and '70s. But the implication of that in your book, you, you write that when the when the state lotteries were set up. Was there some sort of organized a- attempt to put um, easier access to to the lotto in those very communities? Yes. So so it it, it took a little while, uh, but it did. But but the, these these FBI agents who ran the first lotteries, they just sort of assumed that all gambling was the same without paying attention to the fact that the games that they were offering were totally different from these games that were popular in 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 black and, and Latino communities. Um, but there, we, what you get is a, is a cyclical process where once once states, I mean, once states start introducing their own numbers games and their own sort of daily lotteries. You get a cyclical process where states assume that poor and black and non-white communities are going to play the lottery disproportionately. So they put more outlets in those communities. They advertise in those communities. And then, lo and behold, sales are high. So they use that those data to justify increased advertising, increased concentration of retailers, which inc- leads to an increase in sales and so on. And this is where you get to the problem that we've touched on a few times of whether states should be in the gambling economy and whether they are serving the public good by doing so. So that yes yeah, so that takes us back to this question of are they serving the public good are those communities where we have a disproportionate number of players um of lottery players are is are they getting a proportionate return in those uh state lottery revenues yeah, it, it's it's hard to tell. In many states, it is actually unambiguous that the answer is no. Uh, and uh, we've been talking about Massachusetts, but let me just take another another example of the state of Georgia um, and, and many other southern states actually that modeled their lottery uh, off of off of Georgia. Uh, in Georgia, uh, the lottery funds two two programs. One is a voluntary pre kindergarten program, which is great and is universally accessible. The other is a merit scholarship, what's called the Hope Scholarship. Uh, if you've ever met anyone from Georgia, I promise you they know about this. Uh, and the, the premise of the Hope Scholarship is that if you get at least a B in high school on your, as a, an average GPA, you can go to any in-state college or university for free, funded by lottery money, as long as you maintain that grade point average when you're in college. Uh, the problem is that because it is a merit scholarship, uh, it is disproportionately used and available to richer, whiter suburban students when it is, of course, poor, non-white, less educated households that are playing into the lottery in the first place to fund the college scholarships of these richer, whiter urban students. So here we have a case where the lottery is regressive on the player side and then is even more regressive on the back end in terms of how the money is being used. Huh. 
Well, an analysis from the Howard Center for Investigative Journalism supports your findings, Jonathan Cohen. They said that in neighborhoods with lottery retailers, the percentage of the population that lives in poverty is much higher than in neighborhoods without lottery retailers. And we see a similar pattern for uh, neighborhoods that are uh, predominantly people of color. So we'll talk a lot more uh, about that dollar and a dream that Jonathan Cohen writes about in his new book when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Jonathan Cohen is with us today. He's a historian and author of the new book, For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. Jonathan, we're we're talking about sort of who plays uh, and where the money goes. You write in the book, quite interestingly, that there's something about the status of lotteries because they're run by states that allows them to be exempt from Federal Trade Commission rules. And, and, is that, and how does that play into uh, this trend that you're talking about, that lotto sales are disproportionately in, in lower-income communities and communities of people of color? Yeah, so what you're, what you're alluding to specifically is a Federal Trade Commission uh, truth and advertising law, uh, which, which lotteries as a state-run agencies are exempt from and are not subject to. And for a long time, it's actually, I will say, has gotten better. Um, but for a long time, the advertising that uh, you referenced, the, the Howard, Howard uh, Center for Investigative Journalism, their report, which uh, also finds, as others have, um, a disproportionate concentration of lottery advertising in addition to retailers in these poor communities communities and in poor communities of color. And for a long time, what that advertising looked like, because states are exempt from this FTC regulation, uh, is basically promising a jackpot. Uh, you know, your your money can go farther. Uh, you be a, become a millionaire today. Those kinds of things, in, those kinds of things inculcating the desire, the belief uh, in instant wealth and in the prospect that the infinitesimal odds of a lottery were the surest way of getting that wealth. So you're making the argument that a private company would not be able to do what these state agencies are doing. That's right. And if you've ever seen um, or heard, I guess, on the radio, uh, you know, raffle uh, giveaway um, promotions, there's always some fine print at the end that they have to read through. Lotteries don't have to do anything like that. Um, the other the other important thing that they're exempt from is in the uh, financial services industry, you can sort of suggest that you're offering folks wealth, but you can't outright promise it uh, in the same way that a lottery can because they aren't subject to these regulations. I'm only pausing, Jonathan, because this is being done by governments to the people in their own states. 
Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're right. I don't even know what to say. Okay, so, uh, well, I, actually, I, I do know what to, what, what to say, which is then <clears throat> this, to me, it seems r- wrong. I'll just put, I'll just obviously be transparent about it. It seems wrong. Um, but is there something intrinsic to states? Uh, what's the argument that states would make that they need to remain exempt from these FTC rules in order to successfully run their lotteries for, again, for that dream, for the for the good, the public good of the one percent or two percent of state rev, of state budget revenue that would come from lottery lottery sales? Yeah, and, and it really is. It, it comes down to money. Um, it, it comes down to the argument that oh, and and I, I've I've seen iterations of this argument made in the '60s, in the '70s, in the '80s, in the '90s, in the early 2000s, 2010s, 2020, 2020, you name it. Oh, these are tough economic times, and states need every dollar they can get. Uh, and the lottery is providing, even if it's a small percentage, the lottery is providing money for the state, and and we don't want to hamper. We don't want to stand in the way uh, of of getting those sales. And I'll say just to sort of tie this all together. Also, it really helps. And just to give give sort of legislators the benefit of the doubt, I think a lot of them don't think about the lottery. They just see a billion dollars uh, come into the state coffers or into you know their cities and towns budgets, and they don't even think about it. And the lottery is really out of sight, out of mind. And that is facilitated, that is helped by the fact that these lottery players are, as we've discussed, less educated, lower income, uh, and, and non-white. And it's really easy as a result to overlook you know, the $800 on average per, per year uh, that these folks spend on the lottery, probably more for, for some of these folks. Um, and it is really easy to basically pretend that the government isn't really doing this when, in fact, it is the number one way that many people interact with the government every single day is at their 7-Eleven buying a lottery ticket. Mm. Well, just to, to remind folks, because, again, we have listeners across the country, that $800 per day is the per capita spend rate uh, in the state of Massachusetts. It's almost $400 more than the second highest um, uh, spending state or per capita spend rate, which is, I think, in, in New York state. So other states, you folks are spending a lot less <laughs> per, it, it, on a per I, capita basis. I did the math. It's $295 per person in the entire country. And I have to say that includes children. And my 11-month-old isn't exactly a <laughs> prolific lottery player. So you can sort of do the math as to what that averages out to for adults. Point taken. Yeah. So, you know, when you said that uh, m- maybe legislators aren't really thinking about who's playing or how they're being um, induced to, to play because they're just saying that like extra billion dollars for for their uh, their state budgets. I'm going to posit something. I, I, I obviously I'm not in the mind of any particular state legislator anywhere in this country, but it seems to me that if they do think about who's playing, they're thinking the following because it's being mirrored on social media on our social media right now. We're getting these messages from listeners. Someone says, Years ago, I had a professor call lotteries a tax on fools. Obviously, the thought has stayed with me. Another listener says state lotteries are just another tax on the poor. They play because they think they're due, and it's legitimately the only way they'll ever stand a shadow of a chance of ever having that much money. Now, I'm going to say that I think these listeners are sending these messages to us with a sense of compassion. But the point being that... uh, you know, if state legislators are thinking about it, they're thinking, well, these are people who want to play. And if they're, you know, willing to take the chance, so be it. It's their loss and our, the state's gain. No big deal. Right. And this is where the inevitability argument 
is really important and is really important to see how it falls short. There's this belief, oh, these people are stupid. Or the other phrase that folks might know is that it's a tax on people who are bad at math. Um, oh, these people are, are, they don't understand probability. Uh, we should just make any money, we, all the money we can, except that there is no world in which we could get an almost $100 billion industry without the cooperation of a state government and, and these massive corporations that we've already talked about. Even if uh, there was elite, we were returned to this world of illegal lotteries, for example, yes, they would still be a tax on, on, the, on the poor, on the fools who would continue to play. And we can get into why I think that's a, a problematic and not useful t- phrase. Um, but it would not be to the scale that it is today. And it is only because of states' participation that so many of these quote-unquote fools are able to lose so much money on the games. But at the same time, you also spent quite a bit of time talking to people who are regular or even major players in, uh, in as individuals in state lotteries. What's what's the the mindset mindset that shapes you know their uh, their willingness to take chances uh, with their monies? Uh, I mean, you um, I'm trying to think of one uh, Leo Leo McCord, right? Did you talk to him? Yeah, he's he's so he's the opening, uh, yeah. the, the, my sort of opening character, and he, and he's a great example of why I personally don't use the phrase, you know, a stupid tax or or, or or lottery is a game for fools, in part because he knows full well what his probability is. It, he's not playing because of a, some mathematical misunderstanding and statistical, you know, he, it's not like he failed a stats course in college and therefore he's going to get interested in playing the lottery because he doesn't know how these numbers work. He sees the lottery and he, and I'm sort of extrapolating to many of these other lottery players um, who we've already discussed, he sees the lottery as his last best or only chance. Uh, at the American Dream, sort of to put it to put it bluntly, um, and it's it's he knows that the odds are bad. Um, he knows that he's spending a little bit more money than he should. Um, but it is really hard for someone who isn't a lottery player, and as we both discussed uh, at the top, I think neither of us count as a lottery player. Um, it is really hard for for people who aren't regular lottery players to sort of enter the mindset and see what value people like Leo McCord, what value lottery players get even out of losing tickets and even just out of the experience of playing and how many of them equate the lottery and equate playing the lottery with, oh, instead of buying movie tickets, I play the lottery. And they really do see it both as a means of of social mobility and upward mobility and, and the American dream and also in the short term as a form of entertainment. That will that will sort of get them through the day. Um, so again, I don't think this is the the sort of lack of statistical understanding holds weight. I think people people are getting a lot out of these tickets, uh, even ones uh, that don't give them that don't make them multimillionaires. But so tell me more um, about the mindset of, of people like Leo because he's been buying tickets for fifty for fifty years, right? Yeah, that's right. And and uh, again, I, I I think a lot of it comes down to. Um, changing cultural expectations and statuses of wealth. Um, whereas in the 1950s, in the, in the immediate post-World War II period, the sort of definition of the good life, so to speak, uh, was, you know, a white picket fence in the suburbs. Um, obviously, a lot of people were excluded uh, from that world and from that economy, but that was sort of the, the vision of the good life. And then around the 1980s, 1990s, that vision of the good life morphed into one of uber wealth. 
uh, and becoming a billionaire. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence, for example, uh, that around the time billionaire entered the American lexicon uh, was around the same time we got billion-dollar lottery prizes for the first time. And so because our goalposts, our standards, our expectations of wealth have shifted so much, what it means to hit get the American dream through the lottery has changed too. You know, Leo McCord won a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, in, I think it was 2007, and he still plays. You know, that for him just wasn't enough uh, for, for this life-changing sum that he continues to chase to this day. So uh, we have a comment here from another listener on Twitter who says, some people feel that the chances of improving their lives via the lottery are greater than the odds of improving their lives by other means. That says a lot about the conditions they are living in and their feelings about those conditions. Um, let me play, uh, I was about to say the devil's advocate, but I'll be the the the, the state lottery commissions uh, across the country, their, their advocate for just a moment here. Yeah. Because, you know, another thing that you touch on early in the book is that there have been lotteries around forever, right? I mean, back to the Roman times even, or that, you know, there were lotteries were involved in the, the colonization of, of this country. So people like to gamble. Let's just put it this way. People like to gamble. Um, and if that is let's say, a, a basic sort of human trait. Uh, they're willing to take risks. They're, uh, you know, it's helping to pass the time. It's fun, whatnot. Then why shouldn't states use this fundamental human uh, pastime as a means to raise revenues? Uh, I'm, I'm actually not against gambling as a means of raising revenue in in principle. Um, I'm against the sort of shoving advertising down folks' throat and making lotteries available on every street corner and then adding $100 scratch tickets. That seems to be just unnecessary and sort of beyond the bounds uh, of sort of where the state's role should be as an agent for the common good versus as a, a agent for raising money to fund said common good. Uh, let me play devil's advocate to your devil's advocate. Um, surely it is in state's short-term economic best interest for people to buy more cigarettes because states make money on cigarette taxes. So why shouldn't states advertise cigarettes and help the cigarette industry by promoting cigarettes and making them more available and fight to deregulate uh, the cigarette advertising, uh, you know, the packaging that with, with the skull and bones on it, right? Why shouldn't – people are going to smoke anyway, so why shouldn't states make money off of cigarettes more than they already do? Well, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Well, I, I would say, again, the, uh, to me, the, the answer is that that's kind of what they were doing until the cat was out of the bag right. regarding how, how dangerous and terrible cigarettes are for your health. I mean, I don't that, those changes didn't necessarily come from uh, generations of state legislators, right? It came through litigation um, and, uh, and the revealing of uh, what the tobacco com- companies knew. But, but I take your point. I, I really do. So let's let's let's. Look at, though, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, there were five states that don't have state lotteries. Alaska is one of them, right? That's right. Okay. Now, I'm going to put Alaska aside because they have that the, the, the oil dividend, essentially, for, for Alaskans there. But the four states that don't have state lotteries, I mean, are they hurting? Are they doing worse? Are their budgets under proportionally more strain than the states that do have lotteries? Well, well uh, uh, there are a couple stand out, and this is, th- these are... Sort of, they're all they're all sort of unique cases, but I guess that's what you get when you get five out of forty-five states. So one of the states that does not have a lottery is Nevada. Uh, <laughs> okay. Which, yeah, I think I think I, I would say that doesn't count. Um, if anyone's ever been to a convenience store in Nevada, you know that there's plenty of gambling to be had. It's just not a state lottery. What about Utah? 
So Utah, right? Utah and Hawaii, which neither of which have have a lottery, are two of the only are the two only two states in the country without any form of legalized gambling. Utah, I, I think it's obvious because of the large sway of the Mormon uh, population in the state, and I actually don't know sort of. I'm certainly no expert, and if someone wants to pay me to come visit, I'd be happy to. I don't know why Hawaii uh, politically has been so averse to gambling for so long. Hmm. Okay. Well, we're we're running out of time here, Jonathan, and I want to hear from you what— Obviously, you're calling for reforms here because of the predatory nature. I haven't used that word yet. I should have used it earlier. The predatory nature that you're arguing state lotteries uh, uh, behave with. So what are the reforms that you would suggest? Sure. And, and so there, there are a couple, and they're all actionable at the state level, uh, or most of them are. And I will say all of them have precedent. These are all things that have been part of sort of the lottery industry or were part of the lottery industry going back a couple decades, and that states gradually just got rid of because they were tired of you know interferences in making money, and they just wanted to make money and didn't care as much about the social good. Um, the, I'm talking about things like putting caps back on scratch tickets. I don't think we need to return to just the $1 scratch tickets that we had in 1974, but maybe maybe Massachusetts should stop at $25, $30. I don't maybe we don't need that $50 or $100 scratch ticket. Um Ditto with the the cap on rollover prizes for Mega Millions, Powerball, you know, reduce the odds, haha, uh, that the they will create rollover media frenzies that will attract more people to play and that those frenzies, you know, offer essentially gateway drugs uh, for people to get in and to start playing the lottery and they get hooked and so on. Um, another big one uh, would be would be, as we've discussed, advertising uh, both congressional level, and this is the only one that would require congressional intervention, would be the closing of the Federal Trade Commission uh, loophole that exempts lotteries from truth and advertising law. Uh, But also states like Texas, Missouri had one, but they got away with it. Uh, They did away with it. Minnesota um, have restrictions on lottery advertising, both how much uh, of the state's lottery revenue can be spent on advertising, the specific sort of tone and content of that advertising. To your point, I don't know, uh, you know, th- I've not seen any studies that show, oh, the Texas lottery is 5% less harmful, for example, because of these these regulations. Uh, but the, they, they are a good way to start, a good place to start in terms of at least trying to rein in this industry and rein in something that has become a totally normal but yet bizarre part of the American commercial landscape. And continues to grow. We haven't even talked about online sales um, in the course of this conversation. So now you don't even have to leave your home, right? Or you can you can take your lottery with you in your pocket wherever you go. Well, Jonathan Cohen... The new book is For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. He's also Program Officer for American Institutions Society and the Public Good Program at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Great to talk with you, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, and uh, good luck. (laughs) I'll need it. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.